Psalm 105, I believe I might have just said 106 a minute ago. I'm getting ahead of myself there. But Psalm 105 is where we pick up in our study through the book of Psalms together. Psalm 105, I know it's been quite a while, but uh, back in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, uh, we see the first section of this psalm actually recorded there, spoken by David uh, during uh, that time of his life. And so, though we're not told here at the beginning of the psalm that David is the human author anyway, of course, ultimately the most important thing, we know the Holy Spirit is the divine author behind every one of the Psalms and every portion of the Word of God. But it does seem that at least the beginning portion of this Psalm, uh, maybe not the entirety of it, we can't be certain. Uh, Certainly it originally came from David, and whether someone took that and added on by the Spirit of the Lord what David had said there, uh, or whether David composed the entirety of this, and we got the abbreviated version back in uh, 1 Chronicles 16. Uh, We can't be certain, uh, but it is a psalm that really, most of all, we'll see, just celebrates the faithfulness of God. And Psalm 105, as well as Psalm 106, really record the history in, obviously, an abbreviated form and not in an exhaustive form, but it, it records a lot of the history of what God did through the nation of Israel as he worked among the Jewish people from calling Abraham initially through the patriarchs, through the life of of Joseph, through the life of Moses, and some of the things that took place in his life. We'll see all the way up into some of the events of the time of the, the judges. And Psalm 105 focuses really on the faithfulness of God to his people during that time, the great things that God did, how he was a covenant keeping God, how he did miracles on their behalf, how he exercised his power did things that were impossible to help them out in their different situations that they were going through at different times and seasons. Psalm 106, we'll see as we get to it, is really sort of the other side. Psalm 105 focuses on the faithfulness of God among the history of his people. Psalm 106 shows really, you might kind of say, the the unfaithfulness of the people of God as they're navigating their their time through that same period. And so 105 highlights God's faithfulness. Psalm 106 shows us more of the human side and the errors they were making, the ways they weren't trusting God, though he was being so faithful to them, how at times they would rebel against God and turn against God. So we kind of see the divine side, and we sort of see the, the side of humanity in Psalm 106. So Psalm 105 begins by telling us, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. And there's the idea there again of being appreciative and looking to the Lord. It opens up with an exhortation to to worship and to seeking God. And then as it goes on in verse one, it reminds us here, the writer does make known his deeds among the peoples. So in one sense, express thankfulness to him, call upon his name for help. And then here in the second part of the verse, the idea is is to spread the good news of the faithfulness of God, to make known his deeds among the peoples. Now, that's exactly what the psalmist is going to do here as a writer, as he makes known the deeds of God through the time of the history of the nation of Israel, the different things he accomplished, his works, his mighty deeds on behalf of his people. But honestly, in every generation, the same could be true of the people of God in each and every generation, ours included. And there are mighty deeds and wonderful things that God has done in my life, in your life. There are testimonies, even in this room this evening, of the ways in which you have seen God work in your life or some situation that you navigated through. There are times when God showed up and did something incredible where he answered prayer, where he moved in a miraculous way when you saw his hand very powerfully involved in a way in your life. And the Bible says that we shouldn't hold back that news, that we should make those things known. The idea is we should testify, as we might say, that we should share those testimonies with other people, that we would proclaim those things to others around us, making them know of the wonderful deeds that God has done that we've seen of him being the living God and the real God. And a lot of times that's very powerful in people's lives because people can, you know, people can debate theology and can get into arguments with you. But the one thing that people can't really argue about is the reality of something God did in your life personally. 
your testimony is a real thing. And so you telling people what God did in your life in the personal way you saw God work in your life, that's something nobody can argue about. And it carries incredible power and impact. And so the Bible encourages us to make known those things among the peoples. And then verse 2, he comes back to this repeated concept. We see it all throughout the Psalms that one of the ways that God desires to be honored, to be worshipped, to receive the glory that he is due is through the, the instrumentality of music and singing, even as we do as a part of our gatherings when we come together as the people of God. And something, as I said, we should be doing not just in corporate gatherings, but we should be doing it personally, privately, in our homes, in our cars, whenever we have opportunity. It's just a way to connect with the Lord and express thanksgiving and praise to him. And it does something wonderful, as we've talked about many times, for our own spirit and mood and, and the attitude and condition of our own internal being. So he says, verse two, sing to him. And again, there's that emphasis to him. Sing psalms. The idea is some of these psalms, as we've talked about, you can set them to music as the spirit gives the ability to take the words and put them together with harmonies and melodies. And some of the songs we've sung over the years have those very things in them. They're actually uh, statements right out of the Psalms that are used. But again, whether it's singing to him or singing Psalms to him, it's to be done unto him. We're not just singing for the sake of singing. We're actually singing to someone. It's like serenading someone. We're actually singing for him, knowing that he wants to hear it. It pleases him and it gives pleasure to his heart. So he says also, verse two, talk of all his wondrous works. So verse one, make known his deeds. One of the ways we do that is by just talking of his wondrous works. You know, the Bible tells us in the prophets that God actually bends down his ear and listens when the people of God talk about him. And what an amazing thing to, to picture that concept, that, that God's ear is pricked. And the idea is, the little analogy there in the, the Hebrew, when that's described, is basically a reference to how an animal, or like how a dog, a you know, very you know, acute, sensitive hearing, how their ear will, will prick up. Or if you look at an you know, animal out in the wilderness and how their ears are super attentive. And that's the idea, is that when God sees or you know, it becomes aware that his people are talking about him, his ear pricks up and listen to that. They're actually talking about me instead of talking about this or what's wrong with the government or COVID problems. Or, I mean, they're actually talking about me on the earth. Imagine that. Actually using their words to talk about something worthwhile, something honorable, something glorious instead of all the you know, other things that we so often are talking about in media and upset about and angry about and complaining about. And God says, something so wonderful when I can look and I see my people and they're just talking about God. They're just talking about me to one another. It just, it just pleases the Lord. It's just a wonderful thing. You know, I mean, I can understand from any parental perspective. I mean, just imagine if you know, your, your kids are, you know, teenagers and all of a sudden they got a few of their friends over and you come around the corner and you hear them say, let me tell you how awesome my dad is, man. I mean, imagine what that would do for you as a parent. Let me tell you how, well, I mean, I got the greatest mom. And they're like, really tell us about your mom. I mean, and so this is the idea is that God is so blessed by it that we actually, if we would use our words to talk about how wonderful his works are, that it just pleases his heart. So the psalmist says, verse three, in glory in his holy name, and let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Again, those who seek the Lord, what's the, the benefit of that? It does good for our hearts. He says that you can just let your heart rejoice. There's a joy that can come in seeking the Lord. So therefore, verse four, seek the Lord, that is him personally, and seek his strength. So we don't just seek him for what he does for us. Sometimes we just simply seek him because we want to know him. We're actually seeking him, pursuing him, right? In the same way that somebody may pursue someone that they're interested in romantically. That's the idea. Pursue the Lord, seek the Lord with love for him and interest. You want to get to know him more deeply. So you're seeking him, you're pursuing him. And that's the idea. Remember in Psalm 27, he said, one thing that I desired of the Lord that I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the, the days of my life. And he said, and, and your, your spirit said to me, seek my face. And he said, Lord, your face I will seek. 
And that's the idea there is that we would be seeking the Lord because it's just we want to know him, but also at times that we would be seeking his strength as well. So we're seeking him. We seek his strength and we seek his face evermore. The idea is it's a continuous ongoing thing. Verse five, he says, and also it's good to recall, to recall and think about things that perhaps remind us about God and remember, he says, his marvelous works, which he has done. Remember, we just saw last time together, Psalm 103, he said, forget not all. Remember, he said his benefits. And he talked about who forgives you all your sins. He heals all your diseases. He crowns your life with good things. He redeems your life from destruction. And, and he just began to talk about all the benefits that exist for the people of God, for those who know him and have a personal experience. So here he says, take time, remember, reflect, remember his marvelous works, which he has done. Think about it, you know, go down memory lane once in a while, especially when you begin to just find yourself in that kind of that funk or that, you know, spiritual frustration, or I just don't understand. It seems like God's not working in my life. And, I, and, and sometimes we can, you know, mentally and emotionally kind of get into these funks. And I think that those are occasions where it's good to just take a little trip down memory lane with God. And just begin to remember the things that God has done over the years, the way that you've seen him work before. I think that really kind of helps encourage our soul and, and reset our frame of mind. Remember his marvelous works, he says, which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. So he now begins to emphasize those who he's speaking about, the way God worked among the Jewish people, the, 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 the people of the seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people who became Israel, the children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Again, they're God's chosen people. The Bible is very clear about that. Verse seven, he says, he is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. The idea is that God is rendering his judgments, not the idea of necessarily of judging in the sense of punishing or being harsh. The idea here is God is rendering judgments. He's making judgments about what would happen among all the earth. The idea there is that God's sitting on his throne. God's calling the shots. God's ultimately superintending. There may be earthly judges. They may be changing judges, right, at the Supreme Court. Seems like it's going to happen again. And there may be different judges on the earth making decisions and judgments, but ultimately it is the judgment of God himself that's going to ultimately stand and is all going to work together according to the counsel of his will to bring about what God sees is all a part of his perfect plan Despite what humanity is doing, his judgments are going on in all the earth. And he, God, remembers his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, and then his oath to Isaac, that was Abraham's next son in the chosen line. And then he confirmed it again to Jacob, the third in the, the generations after Isaac came Jacob for a statute and to Israel as an everlasting covenant. So God made his covenant. The idea of a covenant is a contract or a promise. And God is a covenant making and a covenant keeping God. And God made the Abrahamic covenant telling Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 initially that in him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And that God was going to send him to a land that he would show him and that he was going to give to him that land. And God, by his sovereignty, not because of Abraham's worthiness. Again, remember, Abraham was a, seemed to be worshiping foreign deities in a completely different territory. And God, by his grace and his grace alone, sovereignly chose Abraham in his most unworthy condition, revealed himself to Abraham, put a calling upon Abraham's life and then began to give to him these promises and these covenants that through him, God would establish a nation and that nation would ultimately be the light to the world and they would be the nation whereby all nations, all peoples of the earth would be blessed. Of course, because the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ, would come through the chosen people of Israel and through Abraham's line whereby all nations would be blessed through the coming of Jesus. So that covenant, he made it with Abraham. 
He then reaffirmed it with an oath to Isaac, Abraham's son, after him. And then again, he confirmed it for a statute to Israel and Jacob as an everlasting covenant. So when God makes an everlasting covenant, the idea is nothing's going to break it. Nobody or nothing is going to break it. When God makes a covenant, he keeps his covenant. And so good is God at keeping promises and covenants, he calls it here an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant that God is going to do what he says he would. And so God makes promises and then he confirms things. And I like that because God makes promises to you and I. The Bible tells us that we're under the new covenant in Jesus Christ, that there's a new covenant through the finished work of Jesus Christ, through his shed blood, his death and resurrection. And we're under the new covenant and God keeps his same covenant with us, the promises of that covenant with us, we can be assured of it. But whenever God makes any covenant promise, the promises of his word to us, how wonderful to know that you don't have to worry about God breaking his promises. If God's given a promise in his word, he will continue to keep that and he'll confirm it and he'll again and again, many times over, show you, see that in the same way I kept that promise in your life 10 years ago and now you're worrying what's gonna happen right now today and God says, watch this, I'm gonna confirm it again. I told you that I'd provide, I'm gonna confirm it again. <laughs> I told you that I'd help you in that, I'm gonna confirm it again. And God continues to just show his faithfulness repeatedly again, Year after year, generation after generation, he's a God that doesn't change. He's the same God that was with Abraham and he was with Isaac the exact same way. And he was with Jacob the exact same way. In each generation, God continued to show that he was the same in his faithfulness and even to you and I as well. In verse 11, he speaks about what this covenant was, that covenant to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that was an everlasting covenant for the people of Israel, saying to them, verse 11, to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. So part of the Abrahamic covenant was God giving as in, let me emphasize again, an everlasting covenant. So a really bad idea to try and give the land to somebody else because God says as an everlasting covenant, I'm giving the land to that people group. That's God's prerogative. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. The land doesn't really belong per se to people. It belongs to God. God says the world is mine. And so when God's the owner of everything, he can give and share and, and choose who he wants his tenants to be. And the particular tenant that God wants residing in that particular plot of land is the people of Israel. It's the children of Abraham. God's very clear about that. The children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To you, I give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. You know, God's given allotments of land to other people groups as well. But he's very clear that the particular land of Canaan is, is given to the people of Israel. And here, this was a part of that covenant that, that God was giving to them a land to you and I, God hasn't given to us a land. God has given to you and I a life. He's given to them a, a land flowing with milk and honey. He's given to you I, and I a life that's flowing with the blessings, the spiritual blessings. And so the Canaan land and all that God did, defeating enemies and helping them conquer giants and take territory and to receive the blessing of the promise of the good land with milk and honey and all its blessings and benefits, that's a type and a picture of the promised life, just like it was a promised land. It's a picture of the promised life God gives to you and I, where we go in by faith as we cross over and by the power of the Lord, he helps us to defeat enemies and to conquer giants and to receive the inheritance of all the blessings that come to us, every spiritual blessing that's in Christ Jesus, that life of the spirit of being able to live in the spirit and be victorious. God describes here, verse 12, through the psalmist, how they really began in a rather small way, but God prospered them. He says, when they were few in number, indeed, very few and strangers in it. When they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes 
saying, do not touch my anointed ones, God said, and do my prophets no harm. So here he speaks how, again, it wasn't technically in any way the efforts of the people. It wasn't their great resources at their disposal. It wasn't that they were able to gather together such a large band of people. And when the population got large enough, they were able to assemble a massive enough army. And, and, and he says, no, no, that's not how it happened. He says, you were few in number. When you were few in number, when you were still just like pilgrims navigating around, you were sojourners, you were just traveling around, living in tents. And, and God says it was in the midst of those things when they were still going from one nation to another, one kingdom to another, that he preserved and protected them because it was his plan and purpose. And God would not let anything or anyone thwart what he wanted to do as his plan in his people's lives. And that's what he's referring to there in verse 14 and 15, where he says, God permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes. Now, did people try and do them wrong? Yes, right? Abraham experienced it. Isaac experienced it. Jacob experienced it. But what did God do? Every time they tried to do his people wrong, God would always intervene on behalf of his people. And God would intervene and God would rebuke as he went down to the area of Egypt, the king from, from doing Abraham wrong. And then later on with Ahimelech, when, when they tried to come against him, God again intervened. And every time, whether it was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, with Laban, who was trying to harm him, his uncle Laban and, and mistreat him, every time God would intervene and he would rebuke. And he would deal very severely with those who were trying to harm and do his people wrong because God always protects his people. God will always preserve his plan. And, and there were many times when just the forces of the ungodly world and I believe just satanic influence. And again, you have to understand, why was there always such a constant effort from the days of Abraham all the way through the life of the Jewish people? Why has there always been such constant and continual antagonism and efforts to disrupt and to destroy the chosen people of the nation of Israel? Why? Because that's God's messianic plan there. And do you think Satan's going to stand by idly and not try and thwart that all the times that he did? And every time in this diabolical way, Satan through people or through governments or kings or leaders or dictate tried to thwart God's plan, God always intervened. God always found a way to, to preserve still, whether it was a remnant or whatever it took, he would rebuke even kings. And we see that all throughout the book of Genesis at times rebuking the different kings who would hassle his servants saying to them, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Again, my prophet speaks of those who speak the word of God. That's what a prophet does. So those who are speaking the word of God, those who the anointing of God was upon, God preserved and protected them. And you and I can be confident in the same that the Lord doesn't keep us immune from hardship and difficulty, even from mistreatment, right? The most perfect one, the greatest anointed one, the greatest prophet to ever live was the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he was persecuted, he was mistreated, he, he was done wrongfully. But even in all those things, God's hand was upon that. And for you and I as well, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it key word there, won't prevail. He didn't say the gates of hell won't come against it. He said the gates of hell just won't prevail. I won't let them succeed in harming and, and bringing wrongful things that will destroy or disrupt my plan among my people. And what a great confidence that is to us that we can take that assurance. God has a plan for us as the church. God's working through our lives in unique ways, even as he was working through Israel and he is faithful and impartial to all of his people. And we can rest in that same preservation of the Lord as well. Verse 16, he then begins to speak of how God worked among them. He had a plan that he was accomplishing. He says, moreover, he called for a famine in the land and he destroyed all the provision of bread. And now he begins verse 17 here to speak of Joseph. He now has moved from 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He now transitions down to the latter part of the book of Genesis. Historically, he's now talking about the life of Joseph. When he says, verse 17, he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons, the idea of putting shackles as a prisoner for a time. Until, notice verse 19, until the time that his word, now that's not referring to God's word, that's referring to Joseph's word, because what that's speaking about is the dreams that Joseph was telling his brothers about. Until the time that his word, the words of Joseph, the dreams he was having, came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. And then he made him lord over his house and the ruler over all his possessions to bind the princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Now, I want you to notice verse 16 through 22 referred to what God did in the days of Joseph. And notice what was taking place was that you might fairly say God here was planning a work for his people And at the same time he was planning a work, on the backside of that, he was also working his plan. So God was planning a work. God wanted to do something, and he wanted to accomplish something among his people, his chosen people. But in order to accomplish the thing that God had planned, God was basically working a plan in a backdoor way by allowing things to transpire and orchestrating events and superintending over what was happening so that all things would work together according to the counsel of his will and bring about his purpose. We know what happened with Joseph. As I said, remember, his brothers hated him. They despised him for whatever reason. And when Joseph was a young man, God was beginning to reveal things to him. And remember, he started having these dreams. And he was having these dreams that his brothers were bowing down to him. Even his mother and father were bowing down to him. And so he's sharing these dreams that God's put into his heart. And they were real dreams. And God was putting dreams in this young man's heart. But unfortunately, it seems in some ways maybe because of his youthfulness, instead of just kind of concealing those things, he was sharing them, not taking consideration the fact that it was kind of coming off a little bit arrogant. Uh, and, and in his youthfulness, he, hey, I had all these dreams, and it was really cool. You guys were all bowing down to me. <laughs> and then he wondered why his brothers didn't like him. And so ultimately, you remember what happens as the brothers are out in the fields, his father you know, sends him afterwards, and ultimately see him. And they hated him so much that they decided that they were going to come up with this plot. They were going to throw him into a pit, and then ultimately they decided to just sell him to a band of Ishmaelite traders to take him away to a foreign country. And though he cried and pleaded, they sold him off, took him out of the pit, and off he went. And then they took his garment of beautiful colors that his father had given to him, and they put some animal blood on it, and then they went back home, and they told their father, despite the grief and brokenheartedness, hey, Dad, look what we found. An animal got a hold of Joseph, and all we found was his garment, and it's all bloody. and, and, And Jacob was mortified, thought his son had been killed, And they just lived with that lie for years and years. And then ultimately, Joseph is taken down to Egypt. And as just a young man, perhaps in his late teen years, here he is now sold off into Potiphar's house. He's faithfully serving Potiphar. God's blessing what he's doing because the hand of the Lord is upon him. And through all those things, he feels abandoned. Why did this happen, God? He's been stripped from his family, but he's just still trying to honor God. Though The hardships are happening. He doesn't understand what's going on, the difficulty. He's being prospered there. And then on top of that, then Potiphar's wife starts making advancements towards him romantically, keeps trying to persuade him to, to, you know, be with her sexually. And, And though he refuses that, she flips the whole thing, remember, and says, this man tried to make advancements against me and cries rape within the palace walls. And ultimately, Potiphar has no other recourse than to basically take Joseph and to cast him into prison. And so now here he is. He's done everything right. The guy's not doing anything wrong. And just one problem after another, one problem after another. I know you can't relate. He's just trying to honor the Lord. And as he's trying to honor the Lord, he's just getting one bad deal after the next bad deal. People are mistreating him. It seems like life is just spiraling downward. It's getting harder and harder. Now he's in prison, stuck there in prison. He ultimately interprets a dream for those who are there to be helpful. And he says, listen, when you get out of here, do me a favor. Just remember me before the king. Let him know. Just plead for me. Would you just 
advocate on my behalf that I'm here wrongly. And, 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 and ultimately, remember, he gets out and, and it says that he just somehow completely forgets all about Joseph. <laughs> Doesn't remember him. Two years pass by. After two years pass by, then what happens? Then Pharaoh has a dream. And none of his magicians can help him figure out his dream. And all of a sudden, this divine amnesia, because that's what it was, divine amnesia for two years, all of a sudden it leaves. And that gentleman says, oh, wait a minute. I know a dream guy. I met him in prison. We had a cell next to each other. And he told me this dream and it was true. And I got out of here. You killed the other guy. You let me out of here. And, and I know a dream guy. Well, go get him. And in one day, right, what happens? In one day, he goes from being in a prison cell to ultimately saying, Joseph, you need to get shaved. You need to get a bath. You've been in prison for two years. The king would like to speak to you. He's having problems, and he heard that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph is taken before the king. He interprets the dream, and he basically tells Pharaoh, listen, here's what's going to happen. That dream is indicating the following to you that there's going to be seven years of abundance. And after those seven years of abundance, a horrible, severe famine is coming upon the land. And you would be wise to prepare and to store up and to set aside in these years of abundance because when that famine comes, it's going to be harsh and it's going to be hard to get through and people are going to be struggling. And Pharaoh's so impressed with that, he makes him the prime minister he gives him charge of everything. He says, look, if you can tell me that, then you should take control of everything. And Joseph finds himself being from a prisoner to the prime minister. Now, the second in command of the most powerful empire in the world, storing up the grain for all of Egypt or even selling it to people during the time of the famine, distributing it to other people, and they're able to get through the famine because of what happened. Now, these are what these verses are conveying, where verse 16 here, it tells us, God called for a famine in the land and destroyed all the provision of bread. In other words, God allowed a famine to come upon the land in his, in his providence, seeing down the road, God allowed this famine to come because it was going to be a part of his plan. But then what did God do? It says, verse 17, and he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So God had a plan and then the way he started working his plan is before that came, years before, God was orchestrating events in one man's life. And I know what I need. To, I got to get Joseph down to Egypt. Now, I'm sure if he just went to Joseph and said, Joseph, listen, I mean, the coat's nice, but you want to go to Egypt? You want to go to a foreign country, be separated from all your family as a teenager? You, what do you think? In a few years in the prison? Um, falsely accused, some hardship. Joseph would have never signed up for that, right? So God just allowed a series of events to unfold in Joseph's life, which were very hard and difficult. And you have to imagine Joseph's just like you and I, as all the events are happening, he hasn't read the entire book of Genesis. He has no idea he's going to be the prime minister at a time when a famine comes and he'll be in the right place at the right time to save the entire nation of Israel at that time so that the line of the Messiah is not destroyed. He has no clue all that's going on, but God does because it says right there, God sent him ahead. God sent his servant and the way that God sent him was through struggle. God sent him through difficulty and hardship, but character was being developed and God was orchestrating all those things and even allowing the difficulties and the letdowns and the disappointments to get him at the right place at the right time for what such a time as this so that he would be in the right spot to be able to spare his family, the tribe of Israel, really it was only about 70 people at that time, so they didn't die off and go extinct during the time of the famine. So God sent him there in advance, it says, but they had to hurt him in the process until verse 19, until the time that his word came to pass, because then ultimately his brothers went there because they heard they were selling grain in Egypt. Hey, somehow Egypt still got grain, well, get over there, go buy some grain. And they have no idea as years have passed that here they're buying that grain from their younger brother, Joseph, who's now grown up and is the prime minister. And all of a sudden they realize when he reveals himself to him, it's me, your brother, Joseph. 
And all of a sudden now, as they're bowing down to him, God's fulfilling dreams from years and years earlier. See, God gave him the dreams years ago, but there was a gap of time between giving the dream and the fulfilling of the calling and the purpose in the dream later on. But it was until that very right time that Joseph's word came to pass that the word of the Lord kept testing him. And that word of the Lord was testing him because through the whole process, Joseph, just like you and I, is going, Lord, I thought you showed me things. I don't understand, Lord. Why is this happening? Lord, why would you allow that to go on? Lord, I, I, I was so certain you put something in my heart, but Lord, everything that's happened in my life, why are all these hard things happening? Lord, why are all these difficulties and problems and letdowns and Lord, this just doesn't line up logically. It doesn't line up mentally. And the whole time, the Lord's testing him by just living by faith, continuing to trust God when it makes no sense and putting one foot in front of the other. And he kept honoring God even when it made no sense until the very day and the hour came where in one day, because it was finally the right time, in one day, God took him from being a mistreated prisoner to being the prime minister of the most powerful nation in the world. You want to talk about God bring a turn of events, but what's a lot of it about? Timing. It's about timing. It's about continuing to trust God when things are happening that we don't understand and just letting God, listen, letting God work his plan. Because when God has a plan and he's planned to work, God will work that plan. The problem is he usually doesn't work the plan the way we expected it. (laughs) Oftentimes he works the plan vastly different, but God had to allow these events to unfold because he needed to get Joseph right there to preserve the nation of Israel, to protect the messianic promise, and to have him at the right place at the right time so that verse 20, the king could send and release him. If he wasn't there, he wouldn't have been released. But the king sent and released him, and he became the ruler of the people to let him go free. And then he made him, Joseph, lord of his house and the ruler of all his possessions, all that power at his disposal. And again, back to that divine amnesia moment I mentioned earlier. If when the prisoner got out and he advocated for Joseph right away and said, hey, this guy's in prison, king. I mean, I got out. You spared me. You didn't cut off my head. I mean, I got a raw deal. Can we reassess his... Uh, you know, court proceeding again. If Joseph would have gotten out at that point, two years before the famine struck and was about to happen, all those events when the king, if he would have got out two years prior and that guy would have remembered, do you know what Joseph would have done? He would have made a beeline to leave Egypt, right? I mean, if he would have got out sooner, he would have got out and he would have left. So God had to keep him there because Pharaoh wasn't going to have a dream for two more years. Now, I'm sure that probably wasn't real palatable, but on God's end, what was God doing? Working his plan. And so God calls divine amnesia. For two years, he calls them to be forgotten about, ignored, disregarded, because God knew that's what it would take to keep him right where he was. And sometimes we may not understand what's going on, but it just may be that God's working his plan and he's doing it in such a way to keep us on the track we're on because he sees something down the road and he doesn't want us to prematurely take an exit ramp or he doesn't want us to step away or go. So God sometimes will orchestrate things in that way. Again, that's his faithfulness. Amazing to think how God sent a man before them, even as God sent the man, Jesus Christ, before you and I to bring deliverance to us. Joseph is a wonderful type of Jesus because he was sent before to deliver you and I from the greater problem of our sin, even as Joseph became a deliverer to the house of Jacob and the people of Israel. Verse 23, and then Israel came into Egypt. Remember, he then invited his family to come down to be with him. His father heard he was alive, that there was grain and food there. And Jacob came and dwelt in the land of Ham, and he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. So as the people of Israel came into Egypt, God began to prosper them. They were only 70 people at first. They began to increase in population. The favor of God was upon them. They were there year after year. And it says they began to increase greatly. God made them stronger than their enemies. They began to become intimidating to the people of Egypt, remember? They started feeling threatened by the prosperity of the hand of God upon the Jews 
living in the land of Egypt. And verse 25 says, he turned their heart to hate his people to deal craftily with his servants. Now that speaks of how after the days, remember that the Pharaoh had died that Joseph had first served under, the next arising Pharaoh began to have an insecurity and a hatred and an animosity towards the people of Israel and didn't like the Jews being his end. Then he started treating them harshly, remember, like slaves and oppressing them. And there was a hatred and there was an animosity towards them because they were threatened by them for some reason. So they started dealing with them craftily and hating the people of Israel. Now, why would God allow that to come to pass? Well, because the children of Israel began initially to really flourish in the land of Egypt. When they first went there in the days of Joseph reigning, they were flourishing and they were prospering. And guess what happens when people start flourishing and prospering? They get comfortable. <laughs> they don't want to leave. They like the prosperity. They like the blessing. They, you know, and, and, and the problem was they were in the wrong place. They were in where? Egypt. They were supposed to be in Canaan. So again, God orchestrates things to make the nest get uncomfortable because they would have just comfortably, hey, we like prosperity. We like blessing. Don't move us away from prosperity. We're enjoying this prosperity. So God allows things to unfold. They begin to prosper. The the next Pharaoh begins to hate and, and treat them nastily, which makes them what? Cry out for deliverance. God, send us a deliverer. He's treating us like slaves. Get us out of this place. And God says, perfect. I've been waiting for you to ask that because I need you to get back to Canaan. So God, again, coordinating all these events, superintending. So therefore, verse 26, historically, what did he do? He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen, and they performed God's signs among them, his wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his word. No doubt speaking of Moses and Aaron. He turned the waters into blood. He killed their fish. Their land abounded with frogs, even the chambers of their kings. So again, he's now beginning to speak about the plagues. Remember the different plagues that God was bringing upon the land of Egypt and against Pharaoh because he was what? Refusing to let God's people go. And so God began to strike Pharaoh and the people of Egypt with plagues. And he was making distinctions because those plagues wouldn't harm his people but they would only come against and cause misery to Pharaoh and his household and the people of Egypt. And when you look at those plagues, you realize that each one of them wasn't only intended to kind of make it difficult for Pharaoh, but it also was to show that he was more powerful than the gods that Pharaoh and all of Egypt were worshiping. You know, the the gods of the sun and the the gods of, of nature, of the waters and the fish god and the frog gods. And each one of those plagues, God was saying, I'm much stronger than your gods. And he would bring these plagues against them, the waters turning to blood, the darkness over the land, the frogs. He spoke, it says, verse 31, and came swarms of flies and lice in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck their vines also and fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. And he spoke, and then locusts came, young locusts without number. They would come and devour all the crops, taking away all the vegetation in the land and devouring the fruit of the ground. And then ultimately, remember, the final plague was the plague of the firstborn. When the death angel came through and destroyed all the firstborn as the final act of God's strong demonstration that he wanted Pharaoh to let his people go. And remember, every time that God would do this, he would say that Pharaoh may know that I am the Lord. That Pharaoh may know. It wasn't just God trying to punish Pharaoh. It also was God trying to reveal himself to Pharaoh. That he might see who the one true and living God was. And every time, what does it say happened? It said Pharaoh would harden his heart, harden his heart. And he would just rebel. And God would say that Pharaoh may know that I'm God. And he was trying to show Pharaoh through the demonstration of his power, orchestrating all these things through the different plagues that happened, finally to the plague of the firstborn where God told the children of Israel, listen, this is the final plague that's about to come and apply the blood of an innocent lamb as a substitute over the the, the doorposts and the lentils of your home. And whenever the blood is seen, that, that angel of death would pass over 
and, and the judgment wouldn't come upon those who had the blood applied of an innocent substitute, and, and that judgment wouldn't come upon them, and it only came upon the people of Israel. And again, God making a distinction where those who were under the blood of an innocent substitute, trusting in that blood covenant and promise of God's word to them, they were spared from the judgment that came upon the rest who were not under the blood, who weren't trusting that. And again, of course, these pictures of ultimately the Lamb of God and the blood of Christ, which allows him to be our final Passover so that the judgment passes over us. So as these plagues began to happen, God was orchestrating it to deliver his people ultimately in his faithfulness, doing whatever it took to set them free. And again, I I find some degree of consolation in that because when you think about how God was ravaging Really, I mean, wasn't he? He was ravaging the land of Egypt, destroying their economy, wrecking everything in the society. But it just goes to show you that God cares very, very little about circumstantial things in comparison to his eternal purposes and plans for people's lives. God was willing to wreck the economy just that Pharaoh would know that he was the one true and living God. And God at times will orchestrate things, I think, by his power to do whatever it takes to try and get people's attention. He'll allow things to unfold, maybe that we are shocked by that are going on. But understand, the heart of God behind those things ultimately isn't to bring misery and to bring punishment. It's all, in God's heart, it's all about revelation. It's all that people may know. God wants people to know him. And sometimes it takes different things to get people's attention, right? And God was trying even through all those things. He says, verse 37, now of the deliverance, he then brought them out with silver and gold. Remember, as they went, the the Egyptians gave them some of their possessions. There was none feeble among his tribes. Egypt, it says, verse 38, was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. So again, after all that suffering, when they saw the people of Israel leaving, they were glad. Finally, leave. This is bad for us. We're more than glad. How can we help? Here's some gold. Here's some silver. And they were, I bet they were. They were glad as they finally were departing from the land because they saw God's hand with them. In verse 39, he then spread a cloud for a covering and the fire to give light in the night. So this speaks of how as they journey through the wilderness, God gave them that cloud. Remember the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. That's how God was guiding them through the wilderness. When the pillar of cloud and fire would move, they were to break camp and they were to move. When it would settle, they were to stop and they weren't to move. They were just to follow the moving of the presence of God. Move when God moved, wait when God wanted them to wait. But notice it was also God's faithful, loving care. The cloud was a covering. It shielded them from the hot sun in the ancient you know, Mideastern climate there. And then the pillar of fire is what gave them light in the night so it was enough of a light so they could see as they were traveling through the desert at times in the darkness and no doubt provided warmth for them and verse 40 the people also asked and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven he opened the rock and the water and it gushed out and it ran in dry places like a river so this speaks of how god not only preserved them but all the ways he provided for them the ways that he was taking care of them, they asked for meat. Remember, God had given them bread at first. That's the second half of verse 40. He satisfied them with the bread of heaven. Every morning, God would put that manna. And notice the Bible calls it bread from heaven. It was supernatural provision. It had nothing to do with something they generated, they created, that God literally, remember it came 40 years, God literally sustained them miraculously. Every single day he gave them what Jesus told us to ask for as well, daily bread. Every day, bread from heaven, God was miraculously providing for their needs. And he's the same God. He can supply bread from heaven. He can supply miraculously, whether it was the bread from heaven, they had their daily to go out and gather in. Or even when they asked for a quail, that as they began to complain, remember, and they wanted meat and God supplied the same for them. Even though they were grumbling, God mercifully gave to them even the meat to nourish them as well. And even on verse 41 says, when necessary, he would open the rock and water would gush out. 
Now, the idea there is God was doing the impossible for them. You don't break open rocks and water gush out. That's called a miracle. And God was doing whatever it took to take care of his people. God was opening up opportunities for his people to be cared for, to do whatever it took to take care of them, even if it required opening up a rock to send forth water to satisfy his people's thirst. They needed food. They needed water. So God said, if I have to provide bread from heaven miraculously, if I have to break open a rock, I will do whatever it takes to take care of my people. And what a wonderful thing to know that that is the same God that we're now on our journey with. As we're now on our journey to know that he is a God who protects his people, guides his people, provides for his people, and can even do impossible things to take care of his people, like bringing water from a rock to satisfy, to meet needs, to take care of us. You know, ultimately, Jesus cried out, speaking of water in the sense of the Spirit's ministry, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his innermost being shall gush forth torrents of living water. And in the same way, in the dry seasons of our life, the, the, the water of the Spirit can be provided for us. God can open up ways when there are no ways to take care of us, to do impossible things. What a great encouragement to know his faithfulness and his power like that. The psalmist concludes, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. He brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness, and he gave them the lands of the Gentiles. Now this speaks now of them inheriting the land of Canaan. Notice, they were the lands of the Gentiles, that is, of foreign peoples. And they inherited the labor of the nations that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. The psalmist says, praise the Lord. So again, speaking of what God did, again, lands they did not work for, territories that they did not you know, uh, procure on their own, they inherited what others possessed because God chose to give it to them, to his people. And again, did they have to strive? Did they have to struggle? No, they inherited by faith. They walked forward in faith and they inherited by faith what God did in his faithful acts for them. And the whole purpose of God's working in the ways that he did was he simply wanted that his people, it says, would observe his statutes and keep his laws. God says, I'm doing all these things. I show you my power. I'm taking care of you. And God's saying, all I'm asking, just obey me. Just obey me. And ultimately, to obey him really is best for who? For us. It's what's best for us. And so God works in our life and works in our life. And his ultimate heart is that we would recognize his faithfulness and what he can do. And that in a responsiveness, we would say, Lord, I should obey you. Remember, Jesus said, if you love me, obey me. And that should be the motivator of our love, that we want to obey the Lord and obey his word. Let's stand together. Let's pray.